You're listening to the TM Live Book Show. I'm Michelle Magwood. Today we're talking about a generation of activists in some of the darkest days of apartheid. Glenn Moss was a student leader at Wits University in the 1970s, and that was a time when the state was all-powerful. He was detained, he was charged under the crippling security legislation, held in solitary confinement, and he never relented in his beliefs and ideals, and he's now written a memoir of that time. It's called The New Radicals, a generational memoir of the 1970s, and it's published by Jakarna Media. Glenn's on the line now from Cape Town. Hello, Glenn. Thanks for talking to us today. Hello, Michelle. Absolute pleasure to be with you and your listeners. Good. It's an important book, Glenn. Um, and of course, the the first question must be why now, and and why has it taken so long for you to write it? Michelle, there are probably a couple of reasons for that. The first is a, a personal reason. For many years, I was telling stories, probably too many stories to too many friends over too much wine, and. Um, I'll, invariably, the evenings would end up with somebody saying, Glenn, you've actually got to write a book about this. You're the one who can remember. And I'd always said, I don't have the time. I have too many other activities, but I'll do it when I retire. And then came the beginnings of that, 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 that evil day. And with, um, with a bit of semi-retirement, I thought the time has come to, uh, to get all of that memory onto paper before it disappears totally. I'm very glad you have done. I think it's an essential part of our history, Glenn. Now, your political awareness, it started deepening um, when you were young in the 1960s. I mean, your parents weren't politically active or, or were particularly politically active. And what underpinned it for you, your political awareness? I think there are a couple of different issues. One of them was uh, a natural propensity to, to be opposed to mindless authoritarianism. And my initial conflicts were predominantly around the authoritarianism of school structures of the dreaded physical education and cadets and mm. various other things like that. Well, you were at Pretoria um, Boys High. That was Pretoria Boys High. Yeah. But uh, fairly, f- fairly early on I became sensitive to, I think, certain sorts of things that were happening within our society. And within that context, a response, an early response at school, um, to particularly the issues of incarceration, security, police detention, interrogative torture and detention, affected me very deeply and influenced me very deeply. And I think it was in those early days that that the beginnings of a political consciousness were formed. Mm, You seem to have, I get a sense of, um, throughout the book, of of really being fueled by fury. I mean, you even resisted initiation in res when you first got to, to varsity, showing that obstinacy. I'm, I'm sure it's a combination of a number of elements. The one is, as I have already indicated, this, this distaste for, for a mindless authoritarianism and a mindless obedience. The second is probably just the, uh, the bloody-mindedness of adolescence and post-adolescence around the idea that, that, that I wasn't going to be pushed around. And, and, and I'd like to believe that there was the developing of, of, of a set of principles and, and hopefully a moralism um, and a morality uh, that 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 uh, that just forced me to stand up to things um, where it was necessary to stand up to them. Mm. Glenn, I, I think people forget now about how frightening it would have been for you and your comrades um, at Newsas Advits. The state was absolutely terrifying, wasn't it, in those days? You know, the state was obviously terrifying in terms of the powers it had. One has to remember that in that early 70s period, by virtue of being middle class, by virtue of being white, by virtue of being students, um, we had a certain level of protection compared to many others in the society. That level of protection was slowly eroded, um, and and the... uh, uh, so, shall we say, the barriers between most substantial state action um, and, and, and ourselves um, slowly moved and changed. 
So in the earlier days, there was the fear of issues associated with surveillance of removal of passports, possibly with uh, banning and house arrest of telephone tapping and various other things like that. But over time, the state used its powers more and more substantially against what I suppose was predominantly a middle-class student and then post-student movement. Uh, finally, uh, you know, going, going to the extremes of the sorts of assassinations that we eventually saw of people like Rick Turner, David Webster, and the deaths in detention of, of, of Steve Beaker and others. And in that context, the death in detention of Ahmed Timal, who was, was tortured to death in 1971, and the torture of his colleague, who was also a student at the time, Salim Esop, were very clear indications of the sort of power the state had. And, of course, they both galvanized us and frightened us. Yes at the same time. You uh, spend quite a lot of time on, on Timo in the book, a chapter about him. It very, um, it's a harrowing story. Yeah, I mean, th this was a set of, based on a set of security police raids in, in uh, October 1971, um, in which Timo and Esop had been involved in developing a Communist Party cell, distributing uh, pamphlets. Um, and they were picked up in a motor car and taken to Foster Square and... Um, and very substantially tortured under interrogation. Timor finally died. It remains unclear as to whether he jumped from the window to avoid further um, to, involve, uh, to avoid further torture, whether he was thrown out, or whether he chose to actually uh, end his life rather than giving up the names of, of colleagues. Um, in the case of Esop, he was tortured to within an inch of his life and was finally found in hospital in a really shocking state. And this affected with students um, in, in, in general and, and the rest of society very substantially. It was a, a germinal moment in the, the early 1970s. Once again, as you say, um, galvanizes and terrifies at the same time. It always brings to mind Chris Van Veek's um, immortal poem, you know, Slipped on a Bar of Soap. Can we talk about um, NUSAS now? I was interested in the background um, and founding of NUSAS because, of course, those of us who were at um, university at the time, we were all very aware of it, belonged to it. But um, I was surprised to read that initially it was an attempt to unify English and Afrikaans campuses. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, we tend to forget, we tended to forget in the 70s and the 80s, and we tend to forget now that the issue of what was referred to as race relations in the 1920s when NUSAS was formed was, was really categorized as relations between English and Afrikaans. Yeah. And NUSAS was an attempt to deal with the poor race relations between English-speaking and Afrikaans-speaking students on their, their respective campuses. Now, I was struck by Paula Ensor's point that uh, involvement in NUSAS politics for men um, it was a stepping stone to an A. Bailey or a Rhodes Scholarship, neither of which were open to blacks or women. Ironic. That, that's absolutely correct. And the point that Paula Ensor makes, which is cited in the book, is that an involvement in student politics could be used um, as a basis for a substantial upward mobility in a number of ways, not, not, not just in regard to the scholarships and, and the various other perks, but also in regard to upward mobility up the corporate ladder or the academic ladder. What is important, I think, about the 70s generation is that slowly and over time it actually rejects this and... Um, and, 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 and the clients are participating that way. And to the best of my knowledge, from my SRC presidency onwards, no SRC president at which at least applied for an A. Bailey scholarship on the basis that it was, um, that it was not open to all students. Uh -huh. oh. Glenn, I want to talk to you about Steve Beaker. You worked very closely with him, um, and you knew him, I, I, would, I would think, quite well. Uh, tell us about him as a man. 
Look, I mean, firstly, just to make it fairly clear, I'm not claiming a, a, a close friendship with Steve Biko. There's mm. enough rewriting of history for me not to have to do that. Um, um, I, I, I knew him. I met him on a number of occasions, both at New SAS events um, and subsequently at joint New SAS uh, South African Students Organization meetings and discussions. And that's the context in which I meet, met him. Uh, Steve, a, an enormous personality, enormous physically, charismatic, a big laugh, uh, a vibrancy and an excitement around life that, uh, that certainly involved uh, drinking and laughing and smoking and various other things like that. But a challenging man, a, a man who on a basis of certainly equality and often more could challenge people and challenge them on their ideals um, and, 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 and their ideas. And it was that part of Beaker that was most important for me, that, that charismatic ability to challenge what seemed like absolute non-negotiable principles, like, for example, multiracialism. Um, and, and, and that was the vibrancy and the attractiveness of the man from the point of view of a student like me. Will you um, explain a little bit more about his notions of multiracialism as opposed to non-racialism? I mean, it, it, at, at the end of the 1960s and the beginning of the 1970s, I suppose opposition to apartheid and what exists is cast within what would have been called a multiracial mode. That would have identified the issues of conflict between races as being core to the, the politics of the society um, and would say that the bringing together of people from different races, black and white people, was in and of itself an important political act mm. And it would also have argued as a, a, a total principle that, uh, that that blacks and whites together in the same organization was a non-negotiable in, in anti-apartheid activity. The challenge of people like Biko and of black consciousness more generally was to say that multiracialism in and of itself has the danger of reproducing the power relations that already exist. If mm -hmm. blacks and whites are unequal in society, then if you put them into the same organization, that inequality will be there as well. And what Biko wanted to argue, and what I certainly came to accept after a, a period of, of, of reflection and struggle, was that non-racialism, which undermined and ultimately rejected in the long term racial categorization and racial stereotyping, that non-racialism did not necessitate all organizations, that all organizations be constituted on the basis of, of, of both black and white people within it. Right. One of the most distressing parts of your story is um, about your time in prison. Um, you were the only prisoner in maximum security C-section um, in solitary confinement. Has it had a lasting effect on your life, Glenn? Look, I was not held in, in, in solitary for nearly as long as, as many others, and, and nor was I physically tortured on any systematic basis, again, like many others. But having said that, the effects of a long-term solitary confinement on a 23-year-old um, were inevitably considerable. And I suppose when I think about it, I, I state that I probably lost my youth in that period. Thereafter, everything was always so much more serious. Um, the consequences of decisions had to be pondered so much more carefully and were so much more, um, were so much more imminent. And probably there was a a lack of, a, 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 the, the removal of a spontaneity, of a, a youthful spontaneity that is in some ways a consequence of, um, of long-term solitary detention. There's one other part of that which is, from my own point of view, which is that um, 
one develops, I think, under the influence of post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, which, which is certainly a consequence of, of long-term solitary confinement, one develops a certain sort of hypervigilance and, um, and obsession with order. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that that happened to me. And whereas that obsession with order may have made me a better organizer or a better activist, um, it probably was at the expense of a certain sort of lightness of being. You um, lost your youth in that in that period. You touch on the fact that um, the relationship between a captive and captor is infinitely complicated. Um, can you enlarge on that? I mean, we we we, we know of the writings on on reference to the Stockholm syndrome, where where those who are being tortured tend to start identifying sometimes with their captors, and their captors actually sometimes start developing a sympathy and identification with those who are the, the, who are abusing. Um, and, 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 and I think that that does happen in the strangeness of, um, of interrogative detention. There is a certain intensity and, in a way, a certain closeness um, between the, the, the capital and, and the prisoner, because at least for the prisoner, that's the total world. It's a total system and a total institution. And every moment is not intense and every moment is not a battle. There are ordinary moments of sometimes being offered a cigarette, of uh, somebody bringing you food, um, um, of yeah, a, a certain sort of ordinariness of, of, of day-to-day existence. And in that context, I think that certainly prisoners often came to see individuals simply as, 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 as individuals rather than as actually total representatives of the system that they mm-hmm. upheld and maintained. And sometimes from time to time, um, the, uh, the interrogators and uh, you know, the warders and even the police would start seeing prisoners in a far more human way. Um, and that, 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 that led to complexity where there yeah. would be un- inexplicable moments of kindness and generosity um, from both sides. Um, inexplicable moments of, of, of humanity in a context of, of gross abuse. And, and kindness. Um, but honestly, just the mention of names like Ruira Swanepoel and Spaker van Veik is still enough to, to turn our stomachs with regards to, um, with regards to cops. I think one of the most um, uh, important things that, that you did uh, um, in, your, in your career was the founding of the DPSC, the Detainees Parents Support Committee, um, uh, we're talking about um, about prisoners and detainees here. What was the idea of that? The Detainees Parents Support Committee arose out of a, initially out of a very specific set of detentions in, in 1981, um, which is, is, is quite a bit later. And they were detentions of, of, of a group of friends and colleagues, many of whom I was involved with. And um, there, 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 there were two intentions when the DPSC was formed um, initially. The first one was to create a context um, to give guidance and direction to parents who are very, very traumatized and obviously deeply upset about the fact that their, that their children had disappeared into the, the, the chasms of, of detention and prison, and to assist them around dealing with that and to assist them around dealing with the authorities and you know, how, to, how, to, how to extract the best for their children in that context. The second was a more political game, which was to start organizing around the idea of extracting a price 
for what the state was doing in this regard mm. um, to to in every way possible extract some sort of penalty for every detention for every person tortured and this could be done through publicity um, through court action through international exposure and in truth through straightforward harassment mm -hmm. of, of security police where, wherever possible and so those were the two the goals of the DPSC initially yeah but amplifying the situation and I think the DPSC was very effective I think it, it, it was a remarkable initiative, probably because it brought together an unusual alliance. It brought together initially predominantly white, middle and upper class parents who were not necessarily particularly politicized at the time, and then a small group of slightly older political actors who had come out of the 1970s and were able to assist and guide in the strategies of, of how to engage with the system. And it gave them a, a sense of being able to do something which yeah, is so valuable. Absolutely. I, mean, I think that was a critical part, um, especially for parents, around a sense of, of doing something, of challenging, of, of trying to actively support and assist the children. Will you um, outline for us briefly, the, um, the, and I'm sorry I'm jumping backwards and forwards in time here, but if you'd outline for us um, the, the, the new SAS trial of 76, which is obviously the centre of your book. Um, at, at, at the end of 1975, um, the state decided to arrest and charge um, five people who the state saw as broadly representative of what NUSAS had been doing in the, 19, in the first half of the 1970s. And those activities revolved predominantly around the formation of the Wages Commission, which were central in the development of the new trade unionism, and a set of political activities that especially, uh, especially revolved around the idea of uh, potential leaders of South Africa who were, 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 were not available because they were either banned or exiled or most importantly with, um, in, in, in prison and that gave rise to the release of political prisoners campaign um, and the state decided to try and criminalize these uh, these activities and also probably to try and intimidate um, and, and, and weaken the, the burgeoning student movement and radicalism that was starting to concern the state. So, so, so five people were arrested um, and charged under what was in those days called the Suppression of Communism Act, with uh, furthering the aims of the ANC um, and furthering the aims of membership of the Communist Party. And that really was the, the, the core of a trial that, that, that endured for a year before we were all acquitted. You almost had to put your life on hold for that year, didn't you? I'm sorry? Uh, you almost had to put your life on hold for that whole year um, uh, while you awaited trial. Now, you were defended by George Bezos, um, and he was required to go to Robben Island and consult um, with the prisoners there. Tell us about their response on the island. You know, the, the, the state had called somebody to testify against us um, who had been a witness in the, the Ravonia trial against uh, Mandela and, and the others in the Ravonia trial. And our counsel argued that they needed to consult um, with, with, with prisoners like Mandela to be able to cross-examine this witness because we didn't have knowledge of what he was saying. And so a delegation led by one of our counsel, George Bezos, went to Robben Island um, and, um, and consulted with particularly uh, Mandela, Walter Sassoulou, Anna Kathrada and Governor Becky, told them about the new SAS trial, showed them the documents and exhibits and press clippings from it, um, and, 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 and took instruction on how to cross-examine that particular witness. The, 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 the prisoners who were being consulted with um, indicated both then and subsequently that it had been a particularly low period um, in, in, in prison life. Um, uh, 
mid mid 1970s, a sense that the political opposition is weakening, a sense that maybe they are being forgotten to some extent, a sense that there's never an end to their life um, to their life sentences. Um, and, and, and they sent back a message. I um, sent back a number of messages, but one of the messages they sent back was that they would, were both intrigued and fascinated by this group of, of, of young white activists who had put them, the political prisoners, at the centre of one of their campaigns and were now facing trial on it, um, and that they were certainly happy to assist in any way that they could. And that they were heartened, um, heartened by your, your activities. Oh, absolutely. It was. Um, I mean, and that was confirmed subsequently after they were were, were released. That, that that it was a a major spirit lift at a moment in which there was a sense of despondency that they were having to fight against. You're right. We always think about the beginning and the end um, of Mandela's time on Robben Island, and, and not those long, long years in between. Now there um there there are some lighter moments in your story. I mean it it really is a a, a a compulsive read, but there's some lighter moments. There's a very funny scene where you describe a raid on your flat when you'd secreted all your dirty plates and cutlery in the drawers. Uh, this in fact was 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 a part part of a set of of very widespread security police raids which were associated with the detention of Ahmed Timol and and Selim Esop, who we talked about a little bit earlier. And um, and uh, I was living in a very small, uh, rather pokey student room in Brompton, and the security police arrived predictably at four o'clock in the morning uh, to, uh, to 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 raid the flat. And quite frankly, I was a I was a, presumably eighteen or nineteen. I was a student. I wasn't particularly good at being neat, tidy, or clean. And um, some of my drawers were full of the uh, plates, the dirty plates that had uh, stacked up probably over a week of eating and various other things like that. Um, and um, and the security policeman opened the door and went away. Yes, sir. And the person in charge of the the raid, who was a Captain Kennedy, said to him, "You go through every single one of those plates because there could be messages hidden in them." So it happened. You know, with the benefit of hindsight now, Glenn, what would you say was the overall effect of of radical student politics of that time? I think there are two different sides to it. The one which is more tangible is the effects on the people that were involved and the growing numbers of people who were involved at that particular time. I think that that first half of the 70s around the development of a radical student politics produced a generation in greater numbers than one would have expected who really spent the next 30 or 40 years of their lives trying to be active, engaged, principled, and to make some sort of difference, who effectively tried to be decent people in a thoroughly indecent society. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, was an important consequence of it. I think there's a second very important organizational consequence, which is that it's during that period that the New South Wages Commissions are developed, and they are really the seed of the new trade union movement that emerged in, in, in the 1970s, which subsequently became uh, FASATU and then KASATU. And those origins are clear and enormous, not just in terms of labor relations, but in terms of the politics, especially of the, uh, the 1980s. Um, and then I think there's a third element, which is that that radical politics of the 1970s probably prefigures, um, it probably plants a couple of very small seeds for a uh, above-ground, generally legal and participatory politics, um, which developed subsequently and is, is best seen, I suppose, in the development of the United Democratic Front and its affiliates in the 1980s. There was a feeling after independence in some quarters that white activists um, from the struggle were sidelined by the new government. Would you say that was true? 
I don't think that it was a sidelining of white activists in general. I think that there had been a fair number of white activists, especially those who'd been involved in, in, in the UDF in, and its affiliates in the 1980s and in the NGO sector in the 1980s who actually went, uh, went into government and played important roles there in, 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 in the first years of that. I think the group that was sidelined was those that were rather more independent and, and rather more critical, that they, those who had imbibed the idea of a body of critical thought and the idea that radicalism was about a challenge to everything that existed. And I do think um, that the new power mandarins were uncomfortable about working with that particular group of people and that they, that they were sidelined and actually remain sidelined at this stage as well. Mm. Which um, begs the question that 20 years on, what you think um, of the current political environment and, and whether it's matched up to the ideals of your generation? I think, th I think there are enormous disappointments. I think there was an expectation that we would, we would do better, um, uh, that, um, that, that we would tackle some of the issues that are generally grouped together under the term transformation rather more actively and aggressively, that we would deal much more substantially with the issues of racism, race and racism and race classification in the society, that we would deal much more decisively with the issues of inequality, um, and I don't think there was a, an expectation that the levels of corruption um, and protection of corruption would develop in precisely the way that they did. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I think that if one looks back, one can see all of those elements there as tendencies and in embryo. I don't think there was anything inevitable about them developing the way they did. That's a very long way of saying um, there, 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 there are disappointments. I think we both could have and should have done better as a society in our first uh, 20 years post-1994. Uh, it might seem an odd question, but do you feel nostalgic for, for what I would think is like a purity of ideals in those days? I'm not sure nostalgia is exactly correct because there were some very, very problematic elements of, 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 of the period, not, not, not only for the small group of, of radicals that we're talking about, but for, for just about everybody else in the society. And the consequences of that, um, of those difficulties were substantial in all sorts of ways. Um, certainly my group lost, lost friends to death, um, um, yeah, and, um, and one wouldn't be nostalgic for that at all. What, what is looked back to sometimes um, with, with, with interest is the fact that in some ways issues were simpler or appeared simpler. Mm. Um, they were, it was much clearer what was, was right and what was wrong. And there was also a, a youthful hope and expectation around the ability to change the world um, and, and a way of acting in and of the world, uh, acting in and on the world that, that allowed for a vibrance and an excitement and an engagement. And I suppose the politics that we have developed um, since, since 1994 is, is a very much more conventional, rather top-down, controlled uh, political party-based politics. And, and, and it may be that there is a, a nostalgia for a more engaged, more active and participatory politics. I like that phrase, Glenn, acting in and on the world, which I think you're quite right, is missing now. What have you been doing in the years subsequently? Look, I mean, following, following my, my, my book ends um, in, in 1976, because that seemed historically a, a good time to cut it off. I mean, since then, I've done a range of things. I was fairly actively involved in different elements of media, journalism, publishing, magazine publishing, um, 
and then book publishing for 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 a, a goodly number of years, particularly through a journal called Work in Progress and a publishing house called Raven Press. Very important um, publishing house, I must add. Um, and um, I, uh, I I also worked around the issues that you've mentioned of of detainee support, uh, social justice, civil rights. I worked as a paralegal for 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 many years, working on in the defence of, of of political trialists. And after 1994, I, um, I, I took up a post as a, a special advisor, special consultant to one of the government departments for, for in fact, 15 years, um, which was my, my major occupation until the, uh, this first instalment of, of early, early semi-retirement. <laughs> Keeping your hand in. What do you think of, I mean, I know you, well, you live in Cape Town and, and, and you um, have very little to do with WITS any longer, so I can't really ask you about what you think of WITS politics today, but do you think in some way that there always have been and there always should be student protests, and I'm not only talking about South Africa, in the nature of studentdom is I think what I'm saying? I might might sound very old-fashioned when I say absolutely unequivocally yes. Um, I think that 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 studenthood and universities probably create the best of spaces for an exploration of 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 everything that is radical in politics, in lifestyle, critically in 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 thought and and intellectualism. They create a context in which there can be a total experience of living, learning, and acting. And I think that that is precisely the context that allows for the creation of uh, an, an, an engaged, more mature, radical politics. And, and, and I would certainly say that, that I believe that that should be part of a, a student world and a student experience. And not only should it be, if it was the case, it would be a constructive and important uh, player in, in, in the whole development of both our society and other, other societies. I quite agree with you. I mean, I know certainly you and I were um, sent off to university with our parents saying, now don't get involved in politics, but uh, you did. Um, I want to end with um, a, an image from the book, um, and it's a lovely photograph, and I want you to remember the day for me of when you and your fellow NUSAS um, um, accused met Nelson Mandela. Will you revisit that day for us? Yeah. You know, as, 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 as I mentioned earlier, our Defence Council had gone to consult with political prisoners on Robben Island during the New South trial. Um, and um, and when, when, when they were released, um, Nelson Mandela had, had always said and sent messages to us saying, one, one day I want to actually come and say thank you. Important what you did, it was important to us and I want to come and say thank you. And, um, and, and, and eventually, again, through the intervention of George Bezos, he agreed at the time that he was uh, state president to come and have lunch with us at my, my, my home in Johannesburg um, on the occasion of 20 years since the acquittal um, and to talk to us and with us and to discuss these, these, these issues. And so we had a most remarkable gathering of people who'd been involved in the trial, involved in the period, and then some of the political prisoners who'd been specifically sort of, uh, and their families who'd been specifically identified in the release or political prisoners campaign. And, um, and, and it was in that context that, that uh, President Mandela came, came to my home, lunched with us, and basically presided over a remarkably special occasion for everybody who was present. And uh, the photograph of him with your sons, I'm sure, is a, um, a, a, a favourite part of the family archive. Absolutely. Glenn Moss, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much. Um, that is your engrossing book, The New Radicals, published by Jakarta Media. Um, and yes, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Michelle.